0: Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast.
1: Good evening and welcome to Pin Drop at the Royal Academy. It's my absolute pleasure to introduce Ben Okri, an amazing author who has written eight novels, a whole collection of short stories, poetry and essays. Also won the Booker Prize with The Famished Road in 1991, an incredible novel. When I invited Ben to read a short story at the Royal Academy in response to the amazing exhibition that's on at the moment, Painting the Modern Garden, Matisse to Monet, or Monet to Matisse, uh, Ben proposed to read a group of stokus, brilliant, wonderful concept, a hybrid, essentially, that brings together a blend of the short story and poetry. I immediately thought this was a great idea because it arguably a lot of the artists that are in the exhibition did something similar with painting in the 20th century. They gave us a new form, Impressionism, and made us view the world differently. So I will leave you with that thought as I welcome to the stage Ben Okri.
0: Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. It might sound strange to you, but I am reading at a pin drop event at the Royal Academy. (laughs) I'm supposed to say that. (laughs) There's a wonderful relationship between the short story and painting, and between the short story and poetry. Uh, We're going to try and make these connections indirectly today. As Simon very kindly told you, I'll be reading to you from a a form that I invented with great difficulty over a period of five years called the stoku, which is a marriage of the haiku and the short story. The idea was very simple, um, but very difficult to execute, which was to find the smallest possible unit of storytelling in the short story form. And the only way I could do that was to find the smallest possible unit of poetry that I knew of, which is the haiku. And I use the discipline of the haiku, not the 17 syllables, but the three other conditions of its, of its existence as a structural device to compress and shape the stoku form. Um, they're very curious things. Sometimes they seem obscure to people. Um, it's the very nature of compression. But before I begin, I'll read a poem called All We Do. And it's about storytelling. And Pindrop, as you know, celebrates the short story form. And This poem celebrates the story. All we do, gazing at the shape of a hill, the gray horizon, a woman reading a book, a landscape shaped by history. All we do is story. Our public acts are dreams. Our private acts are dramas. Submerged rivers are our thoughts. Misted streams are our hopes. Like the spider, we turn all things into ourselves. We bend the light of time into fables. Beyond our mind, reality moves. Unknowable, like the darkness before creation. We carve From the unknown, a world. Without story, our identities starve. We live in and out of time simultaneously. Living belongs to story. Being belongs to mystery. Beyond form, our souls breathe. We yield time, our story making sense. In this portion of eternity, awake, and in dreams, we live myths. It's what makes us immense. Thank you. The stories I'm gonna read have been kind of selected by Simon. And I, I trust his selection instinctively. Um, so if it goes right, I take the credit. <laughs> and if it goes wrong. The first stoke I'm going to read is called The Clock. It took place on the Bois de Boulogne on a somber, moonlit night. We stood in a clearing among the chestnut trees. We were all in 18th century costume. The moment arrived. The duelists stood opposite one another with their pistols primed. Then the most unlikely thing happened. The man whose second I was, whom I partly knew, suddenly cried out. He pointed at something in the midriff of his enemy. We looked to see what troubled him. We saw a large, round, shining clock about his enemy's waist. He wore it like the buckle of a belt. The numbers were black against the luminous dial. My acquaintance was mesmerized by the clock. He was transfixed by it. He kept pointing, then he began gibbering. The clock had somehow poisoned his mind. I said, for God's sake, old chap, it's only a clock. Look at it, he whispered, it's fiendish. Take your mind off it, I said. That's impossible, it's an abomination, he replied. His enemy stood Impassively with his second, they gazed at us. My acquaintance fell apart before my eyes. He was utterly unable to rid his mind of the clock. I hadn't wanted the damn duel anyway. I had no idea what its cause had been and was never told. It remained a secret between the two enemies. I had got roped into it by honor, false friendship, and favors I owed. Damn the favors one owes. They lead one into other people's hell. There was nothing anyone could do. My acquaintance had succumbed to an appalling paralysis. His enemy had been patient. Night darkened, and then dawn slowly appeared. His enemy had waited many hours for my acquaintance to recover. He waited silently, like a monument, a stone statue of some disdainful Roman god. My acquaintance, however, became less than human with the agonizing passing of time. Shivering and muttering about the infernal nature of the clock, my acquaintance had a mental breakdown as dawn broke. Eventually, we had to carry him from the middle of the clearing to the waiting coach. It had been understood that there would be only one coach, the loser being presumed to have been killed. We had to take the coach. The enemy was magnanimous. He was silent. He was as implacable as a marble figure on a plinth at night in a strange city. He and his allies simply stood there in the gathering dawn with the luminous clock brilliant about his solar plexus. My acquaintance never recovered. We took him to a hospital. Then his hallucinations began. Then his madness. I visited him often. Whenever he saw me, he asked about the clock. I was evasive in my answers. Then I stopped going to see him. He was infecting me with his instability. It doesn't take much, does it, to unhinge a man? Especially if, in a clearing at night, under a moonlit sky, a mind a mind can't unfix itself from a symbol. Now, I go through life not fixing my mind, on anything or anyone. There is a sort of freedom in this. The second one is called uh, Wild Bulls. To my annoyance, every time I've been trying to remember this story recently, I keep remembering it as Red Bull. Which is, I don't drink the stuff, but it's very annoying how words do that to you. Now I've infected you with that. It's kind of a war story. It is the aftermath of war, and there is chaos everywhere. I am in a fabulous house where they have gathered together the children of war. They are all orphans and all lost. I am meant to be their teacher. They can't absorb anything just yet, so I try to get them interested in art. To my surprise, they take to it. They paint and draw freely for long hours, absorbed and lost in color, fleeing from grief into a world of mysterious shapes of bulls, birds, hybrid creatures, and patterns in which are concealed indeterminate beings. I also try to get them to do other subjects, like maths, history, geography. But about these, they are desultory. For them, art is the thing. After some time, folks come visiting acquaintances from various universities. They take an interest in what the children of war had been doing. They find little to remark upon in the general subjects. Then I show their art. The visitors are bowled over, thunderstruck. They are astounded at the paintings in rich ochre in reds and yellows of enormous wild bulls. The canvases are large, and the paintings bristle with unaccountable energy and wildness. There isn't one painting that isn't extraordinary or terrifying in some way. It is like beholding on the walls of obscure caves works of bold, mature colorists of the stature of the post-impressionists or even the masters of expressionism. It is awesome and spooky. Who on earth are these children? Has grief unhinged them into genius? Later on, we're at a large round table. It is the end of dinner. Most of us are writers. One of the writers, a woman, uncelebrated, proposes that we each sing thank you in as many different languages as possible. I begin by doing so in the language of a favorite aria, with all its elaborated modulations required. The others sing in German, Japanese, Russian, Swahili. There is good cheer amongst us, but it is a moment in an oasis, a brief respite from all the suffering around in the aftermath of war outside children search for their mothers in bombed houses and cratered tower blocks at night in the darkened city children sleep on the rubble of their bombed out homes waiting for their parents to return from the dead This is just a, a paragraph or two I want to share with you before I go back to the story, the stoku, rather. And it's from In Arcadia. It's towards the end, and these are intuitions that the characters have. And the one I'm going to read is uh, two intuitions about painting. Painting is an inscription on the flesh of time, an invocation. colors. It is a raising from the dead, a resurrection, a transmogrification, a transmutation. It is the triumph of plants and minerals and animal hair. It is soul dancing to soul. Painting is a magic charm that nature herself has invented in all things that breathe and move and that don't breathe and don't move. There is healing in it. There is wisdom in it. There is hope in it. And there is unfathomed power in its undiscovered potentials. It is one of the earliest tools of survival. You painted a thing first, then you made it manifest later. You made it happen. You made it real. There is painting of the mind when you first create the complete form of a thing or dream or desire and feed it deep into the spirit's factory for the production of reality. Painting is a mirror of healing, the base of creativity, the springboard, of materialization. (laughs) This last talk I'm going to read is called The Secret Castle. And it's um, maybe one of my favorites in the book. The bus drove past telegraph poles in meadows of blue. In the bus, On that beautiful Italian day, there were boys returning from school and working men. The bus came to a stop. A woman with several men came on. She was a young woman who carried herself gracefully. One of the boys helped her into the bus and gave up his window seat to her. She had an exquisite complexion clear eyes and uncanny composure the boy called reggio made friendly conversation with the young woman the man she was with regarded reggio with suspicion he was just a boy coming home from school and he meant nothing by it he was drawn by the mystery of the young woman who sat impassively staring straight ahead as if she were dead or going to die. Her face, or rather her eyes, lit up only when the boy spoke to her and asked her questions to which answers were not necessary. The questions were not necessary either, but life would be duller if he hadn't asked them. Do you like those hills? Yes. Do you like that cloud? Yes. Do you like that horse in the field? Yes. Do you like that car going past us? No. Do you like this bus? Yes. Do you like school? She paused. Her face clouded a little. Then she gave a tiny smile, like a snowdrop, and said, yes. The boy was silent for a while. He was not thinking of any new questions, but just turning over in his mind the clarity of her answers. Somehow, darkly, he found he deduced a great deal from her slender answers, but he wasn't sure what. decorum had made him silent for longer, but the strangeness of her answers made him want to know more. The young woman remained impassive, staring straight ahead, barely moving, barely breathing. He didn't look at her, but he seemed to see her. She gave him the peculiar feeling that she was like a calf being led off to the slaughter. Then he noticed that she moved. It was a movement so odd, full of such contained intensity that it seemed to demand him to speak some more. Do you like fields? Yes. Do you like rivers? Yes. Do you like roads? No. He paused. He wasn't expecting that answer at all. He couldn't see anything wrong with Rhodes. He quite liked Rhodes. But now that he looked at Rhodes through her spirit, he wasn't so sure. Maybe there was something unnatural about them after all. He wandered off and thought. Then after a while, she made the same odd movement. Do you like houses? Yes. Do you like moonlight? Yes. Do you like mirrors? No. This arrested him. For the first time he turned and gave her a quick look. He thought it strange that someone so beautiful should not like mirrors. He pondered this a long time. And time became elastic as he pondered. He lost himself in thought, and he lost himself in space. He was no longer in the bus, but in a magical world, a world that made him smile. He was within happiness itself, within its secret castle. When he came to, he found that the bus had stopped. It was at the end of the journey. They all filed down. The men she was with regarded him darkly. When they had all got down on the dusty road, one of the men turned to him and asked what he meant by talking to the young woman. Nothing, he said. Then he apologized. The man grew angry at the apology. It seemed to confirm guilt. He got steamed up. He talked in a loud voice. He addressed the other men and appealed to their common roots. The men crowded the boy. They were all shouting. Then a tall gangly man among them, a bit of a fool, set up his fists like a boxer in a comic movie. He began to jump around the boy. The men egged him on. The boy was perplexed. He had no idea how things had come to this point. While the shadow boxing went on around him, he caught a glimpse of the young woman. She was hidden behind the man. Confused, he felt a punch whistle past his face. Swiftly, he set up his fist too. Before he knew it, he was grappled to the ground, his feet kicking the air. A heavy weight and smelly work clothes pressed down on him. Bad breath fanned his face. Bristles stabbed his cheek. There were voices all around, hollering. Then suddenly, he found himself standing up. His father, who was a bus driver, was beside him, shouting, waving his arms, defending his son. My son meant nothing by it. What does he know? Harmless questions. A polite young man gave up his seat, meant nothing by it. So you say, one of the men cried. He is old enough to do enough damage. They start earlier and earlier these days. The voices flew back and forth. The boy stood there, a boy among men. The other schoolboys were a short way off, staring, whispering among themselves. Then Reggio's father found a solution. I will solve this problem, he said. I will solve it now. How, they asked. Get back on the bus. Everybody, get back on the bus. After much discussion, in which nothing was really concluded, just voices flying out of mouths. They all trooped back on the bus. Then Reggio's father got into the driver's seat, started the vehicle, and they soon set off. The young woman sat in the same place as she did before, near the window. Next to her was the man who shouted the loudest. He had a big, jowled face and severe eyes. He was squinting. He was a hard-working man, working his jaw. He looked like the word honor in ragged clothes. He stared straight ahead. The young woman looked sideways out of the window. They did not speak. There was now a strange silence in the bus. Reggio was at the front near his father. The bus chugged across the bridge, past an orchard, an isolated villa, vineyards, a crumbling castle, and a field with a white horse staring at the sky. The bus drove past telegraph poles in meadows of blue. Then the voices began again. Where is he taking us? Yes, where is he going? They went on like that, till they found themselves approaching a familiar place. The bus came to a halt. They were at the precise bus stop where the young woman and the men had got on the bus in the first place. Reggie's father swung open the door. This is where you got on, he said to the men. This is where you get off. There was a stunned silence. No one moved. Then the young woman stood up. The man next to her was obliged to stand up too. She made her way down the aisle, and when she got to the bus driver, she stopped. Reggio did not look up at her. His father said, everything should be simple. The young woman smiled, and when she smiled, something beautiful shone from her, like the purity of that limpid sky. Then, with a barely perceptible movement, she passed something into the boy's hand. "'Yes,' she said, and gracefully got down from the bus. The other men trooped after her morosely. They said nothing. They were working men, just trying to uphold their honor. The last to get down was the gangly fool who had wrestled young Reggio to the ground. He, too, was silent, but when the bus started to move, he set up his fists again as if challenging the departing bus to a fight. Only then, as they departed, did Reggio look out of the window. Then, to his father, he said, But I meant nothing by it, Papa, only harmless questions. I know, my son, the driver said, but they're the ones that can cause trouble. Reggio silently stared. The young woman as she grew smaller and smaller in the distance. When he could no longer see her, he opened his hand and beheld her presence forever in a flower. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Ben. Um, can we? I think we should all give you a round of applause after that last thing. Thank you very much. It's a, definitely a first for us at PinDrop to have not just one complete story, but sort of you know a number of great stories that come together, almost making like an like an album of these. Uh, this collection It was really wonderful to see the different narratives but all kind of coming together with some sort of connected theme, I suppose. We can come to that. Um, but it was just a really... And also the stoku, seeing the comparison between poetry and the short story form, follow poetry, following stoku, it really it kind of made that solidify in my mind at least, which I know you're going to talk a little bit more about. But none of you are here really to hear me speak. Um, you're all here to hear Ben speak, and you probably have many, many questions. But I'll just kick off with... One. This whole construct of the stoku is, is unique to you, I believe. Um, it's something you've been working on for a number of years, and something I find particularly interesting in that you are compressing something into you know, something which could have a lot of um, breadth and be quite unstructured, a short story. It can be any sort of length. It can have any sort of form, really. Um, but you're kind of putting it within the constraints of a poem. And I find that very interesting because it delivers a particular kind of structure to a story. So that's a very long question, and I'm gonna hand over to Ben to try and deconstruct
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, those of you who know me by the Farmi Road might be quite a bit surprised to hear me eulogizing the, the short form. But um, actually, this is the structure of my writing life. I began with poetry, then a brief um, segue into journalism, um, and then the short story, and then the novel, um, and then back to poetry, and the short story, and the novel, and it goes on like that. So poetry in- inevitably leads to the short story, and the short story to the novel. But these are very distinct um, moods. Um, but for me, the I've, all, I've said this often, the prose form is nourished by the short story. Um, it's the compression of the short story that actually revitalizes language. Language gets loose and saggy the more it's used in long forms, the, the novel. The novel does not revitalize language, it's the short story and poetry, compressed forms, forms in which you, are, you, you have no choice but to uh, let one word do the work of several. Um, that's what makes the language li- live again. And, and, and for me, I always come back to the short story. And on one of those um, um, occasions, I was just asking myself, actually, where does the short story begin? <coughs> Can you have a one-line short story? There's a very famous one. Does anyone know this famous one-line short story? It's the shortest story ever written. I've had, I've had arguments about it with friends. Um, du- duels at Dawn and Bois de Boulogne. Um, d- do you want me to tell you this one-line story? Yeah, it's better than Hemingway's. I don't, I'm not, I, don't believe, I don't believe Hemingway's one-line story is as good as this one. And it goes something like this. When he woke up, the dinosaur was still there. <laughs> not bad, huh? <laughs> not bad. That's, uh, August- that's Augustino Montesero, Latin American. It would be a Latin American, wouldn't it? Is that a short story? Is that a short story? If
1: we say
0: it, it's maybe. It. Yeah? Well, some people say it's not. I say it's a short story because several things happen in your mind. First of all, the person has to go to sleep for them to wake up. And secondly, the dinosaur has to have been there before for it still to be there. Um, So it builds builds this complex world from what isn't there and what is there. It goes back and forth and you create this. There's a story. You create the story of this person who there was a dinosaur there and then he fell asleep and it was still there when he woke up. Is he in the ancient history museum? Is he, is it 10, 10 BC, you know, you know what I mean, it, it, it brings, brings many things to mind. But I was interested in this point of compression, and I, I, was, I think most of, most of us always need something to help us structure, um, and I, the haiku was a very helpful structuring point. And I chose these three conditions and added a fourth one. And I'll tell you two of those three conditions. One is the weather. Um, for some reason, the, the haiku, this fiendish Japanese mind, just Included this, this condition of the weather um, in, in in the haiku. and by the weather they meant environment um, the the con- prevailing conditions in any form that that, that takes um, and the condition that I added to it is that it must be dreamlike. So in all the stokus I write there has to there's a sense there's a core that is dreamlike. It, 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 you, you don't quite know what it's doing there. Um, why, why, did they, why did the driver successfully manage to get them to go back on the bus? That doesn't make sense. That's dreamlike. Um, and the dreamlike for me stands for the poetic condition. Um, so, if ever you see, if someone comes along and says they write a stoku and you read it and it doesn't have a dreamlike center, throw them out of the room. <laughs>
1: Um, I suppose mysticism and use of the imagination is an important part of your writing, I suppose, and you'd, you'd, uh, to some extent. And uh, there's been a lot of commentary on mysticism within your work. Do you think that maybe the, the one-line short story, because it demands so much of the imagination, is therefore more of a short story to you and than maybe to other people? Is that maybe where the rub comes?
0: Yeah, I think the imagination is a key part of the short story. The, imagination, the, the short story appeals to the imagination in the way that the novel appeals to your sense of development. It appeals to your sense. You see, the novel really practically gives it it all to you. The novel doesn't leave that much to your imagination. It really gives you a fully furnished room. It gives you a kingdom with a king and rivers, and it tells you and shows you everything. The short story actually works most by what it does not tell you, but which has this great pressure on what it does tell you. Um, And what it does not tell you, awakens the imagination. The imagination is most alive at things that are absent. The the greatest paintings are not necessarily about the things that you actually see, but the things that are suggested. My favorite paintings, uh, Giorgione's Tempesta um, in Venice. I mean, you can look at that painting for 200 years. You can't figure out what on earth is going on. (laughs) Every time you look at it, it's, it's quite clear that something, you know, you see a man standing there by a stream, a woman looking up at a woman on a high level, but why? Why, why is there that flash in the sky? What's the connection between these events? That's dreamlike, the imagination comes into play because of it. I think the imagination was one of the great great inventions of, of, the, of the art that's part of, of the painting. Maybe the
1: correlation between a lot of films. Great films are made from they're inspired by paintings or by short stories. And maybe because there's so much left in imagination, there's less to criticize, there's less restriction to some extent. Yeah. That's maybe a statement more than a question. I'm not sure. No, I know some,
0: some of those best some of the best films are made from shorts. Very are, very yeah. few great films are actually made from great novels. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've discussed this with directors across the world, and they tend to tend to say the same thing. The trouble with novels is that it gives you everything, yes. and you're constantly at war. The, the director is constantly fighting with this novel, you know, um, because they usually know that people know this novel, and <laughs> they, they, they're always going to come to the film and say, "Well, it's not like the novel, is it?" Um, whereas with the short story. Um, the I mean, I mean t- you take jo- Joyce's The Dead, which was made by the great American uh, director, what's his name, um, Ford, no it wasn't Ford, um, anyone know can anyone remember, <laughs> The Dead, Houston, Houston. Houston, that's right, thank you, you know, 40 page short story and he makes this great, it's one of the most exquisite films, um, hmm. precisely because of that. Okay, just to open up to the floor to a few questions.
1: As someone that is interested in writing, I would like to see how you can recommend, obviously you are a magnificent example of short stories, but I have been reading Chekhov, and I find some similarities. As you say, the richness of the language is sublime, so I would like to know if you can recommend some more
0: writers. There are a lot of great short story writers, and Chekhov is the best place to start, he's, he's wonderful and he wrote a lot of them, unlike many other really good short story writers who didn't write that many. Maupassant, The Story of the Necklace is an incredible story, is, you know, every time I read that story I'm heartbroken, it's yeah. an unbelievable story. That would um, make a good film. we we'll would make a wonderful film. Yeah. Why haven't they done it? I don't know. Maybe we should. We should, we should d- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> make, make it a pin drop Ben O'Crick yeah. uh, movie. Yes. Um, Flaubert. Every now and again, a, a, a good novelist, a great novelist, writes wonderful short stories. Flaubert wrote three really wonderful short stories. They're not short enough, I, I admit. Tolstoy wrote some really, really lovely short stories. Um, Cervantes, um, In Our Time, um, V.S. Pritchett. In, in England, is a wonderful short story writer. Somerset Mom. I grew up reading Somerset Maugham's short stories. I didn't used to think that they're works of art, but anything that you can reread 50 years or 40 years later and enjoy it as much as you did the first time is a work of art. And one of his, one of his favorite stories um, to me is uh, The Hairless Mexican, I love the title as well. I was in Mexico recently and I, I did not see a single hairless Mexican. Um, Hemingway, Hemingway is a, is a wonderful short story writer. Um, Scott Fitzgerald. Yeah, there's a a good (laughs) list. But if you really, really, really want to take it, for me, one of the best places to actually learn the short story is exactly where you are right now. Um, Paintings. Um, Painting teaches us the art of the short story. Um, The novel's a movie. Many things going on. A painting is really one... The short story is really one thing, or many things with one thing at its heart. And I, I, I I go to the National Gallery, I come here, just look at paintings to clarify um, my thinking.
1: Um, in the current climate, it's getting increasingly difficult to teach young children writing. What would you advise is the best thing to inspire young writers?
0: Put them in front of a painting. Really, I do that, I do that often. I do this exercise often. It's a wonderful exercise. I taught in, in, in Florence um, creative writing. but I very rarely do it. I just did this once and I took them to the Uffizi, and I said, go choose a painting, folks, just disappear. Go away, find a painting, stand in front of it for 10 minutes, just look at it for 10 minutes. Don't blink, just look at it. And when you're done, I meet you back at base, and you write me a short story from what you saw. Extraordinary effect. Unbelievable the way it inspired them. It's because, first of all, for me, writing is about teaching people how to see. People think that writing is about teaching people how to write. Actually, you have to see first. You have to hear first. You have to, you have to be aware of, of, of the world. You have to be aware of things. Henry James said that um, a writer should be someone on whom nothing is lost. Um, a short phrase, beautiful phrase. On someone on whom nothing is lost. It's really about paying attention, about looking and then about using the things you see to leap into the imagination. The leap is the difficult thing. But if you give people something, sometimes I give them a stone, I put a stone in their hand, and I say, just feel that stone. Then I take it from them, and I say, okay, write a short story from that. We like things. Things inspire us. Um, we find our lives very hard to contemplate, but if, you, if, if, we, if, if indirectly we can contemplate our lives, and that's, that's one of the great values of art. It teaches us to think about the complexity of our existence, but indirectly.
1: Thank you. Um, okay, so I think you're going to read us one more poem. Ben, thank you very much. Um, thank you, everyone, and I'll leave you to read your poem.
0: Thank you. This last poem I'm going to read is um, it's, it's kind of a New Year poem, but don't worry about the New Year bit. Just take the idea that every day is a New Year, um, or the New Year begins every day. And it's called New Year Poem, Oh That Abstract Garden. Oh that abstract garden of being tells me to be brave and clear in the fire of living and in the journey through the year. So I will grow me like an oak tree and make life's honey like a bee. Each day, I will walk an interesting mile. And with the sun, I'll share a smile. I'll play again like a child and celebrate what's wild. I will swim in every sea or river and reflect the light of the sublime giver. I will be at ease with opposition and will cultivate intuition. I will walk the surprising streets and dance to life's unexpected beats. I will notice all the phases of the moon and try not to act too late or too soon. I will write something new every day and look at paintings in an alternative way. I'll not dream the same way twice but I'll not be shy to repeat what's nice. I'll have the courage when needed to change and I won't forget that life is strange. And so I'll learn to love the simple things as well as the complexity that life brings. Good or bad, I'll learn to treat the same and I'll not forget that it's all a mysterious game. I'll not let that general fear of death run my life, and I'll make magic even out of strife. Into the higher realms I will enter and make my corner the center. Oh, that abstract garden, make me clear, make me brave without fear. I intend to love this rich new year.